I would like to begin with a book that I finished reading a couple of days ago. It's a very new book, a new book by my good friend Alain Badiou, La Vraie Vie, The True Life. Uh, the book opens with the provocative claim that from Socrates onwards, the main function of philosophy is to corrupt the youth, the young, to alienate or rather extraneate in Brecht's sense of verfremdung, the young from the predominant ideological and political order, to thaw radical doubts and enable them to think autonomously. No wonder Socrates, the first philosopher, was also its first victim. As we all know, ordered by the democratic court of Athens to drink poison. Today, however, the task of a philosopher is no longer to undermine the hegemonic, hierarchic, symbolic edifice which grounds social stability, but to make not only the young, but people in general, perceive the dangers of the growing post-patriarchal nihilist order which presents itself as the domain of new freedoms. We live in an extraordinary era where there is no tradition on which we can base our identity, no frame of meaningful life which would provide uh, for us which would, sorry, enable us to live a life beyond hedonist reproduction. This new world disorder, this gradually emerging, worldless, weltless civilization, exemplarily affects the younger generation, which oscillates between the intensity of fully burning out sexual enjoyment, drugs, alcohol, up to violence, and the endeavor to succeed, study, make a career, earn money, and so on, and so on. The only alternative to it being a violent retreat into some artificially resuscitated tradition. Incidentally, the last time I visited Seoul, South Korea, I was fascinated. I think this really is the country of our future. Literally, I counted once on a train people and nine out of ten minimum were on some medium talking, looking uh, at a screen, and they, of course, have in Korea the highest suicide number per capita of in younger generation. The young people are absolutely obsessed with intensely enjoying and with succeeding a career. Uh, but you perspicuously noticed that we are getting today a kind of decadent reactionary version of the withering away disintegration of the state announced by Marx. Today's state is more and more an administrative regulator of market egotism with no symbolic authority, lacking what Hegel perceived as the essence of state, the all-encompassing community for which we are ready to sacrifice ourselves. This disintegration of the ethical substance is clearly signaled by the abolishment of universal military conscription in many countries. The very notion of being ready to risk one's life for a common cause 
appears more and more pointless, if not directly ridiculous to most of us, so that armed forces, as the body in which all citizens equally participate, are gradually turning into a mercenary force. I think, you see, this is the first thing that a critical thought should do. Not just celebrate wonderful, no longer universal military conscription and so on. What's the price we are paying for it? That you have mercenary army. And that, uh, and that this, uh, uh, again, abolishment of, uh, of uh, uh, military, universal military conscription is a clear case of privatization of state itself. This disintegration of a shared ethical substance, I follow here but you, who develops this, how this disintegration affects differently the two sexes. And I'm well into transgender debate. I don't want to go into it now how. No, there are not two, there are three, four, five. The latest number from Canada is that there are 29 sexes. But okay, I will not go into that. We can debate it. Uh, men are gradually turning into perpetual adolescents with no clear passage of initiation that would enact their entry into maturity. You know, in more traditional societies, still, my God, half a century ago, there were many initiatic points in the life of a young man. In some countries, military service. You become a man after you do military service. Then it was acquiring a profession. Then it was finishing your education. This no longer functions. Uh, 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 no wonder then that in order to supplant this lack, youth gangs proliferate, providing ersatz initiation and social identity. But, and here I found Badiou's thesis interesting, he claims that in contrast to men who are condemned to some kind of prolonged eternal adolescence, Women are more and more precociously mature, treated as small adults, expected to control their lives, to plan their careers, and so on. What then is happening today with sexual difference? Traditionally, we all know this, men were perceived as bearers of the one, the monotheist god, patriarchal power, stable social hierarchy, while women were associated with the two. Their position was always perceived as the one of between the two, between mother and whore, lover and saint, and so on. But you see in this between the two something much deeper than an effect of oppressive patriarchal ideology. A quote from Badiou, a woman is the overcoming of the one in the guise of a passage of between the two. End of quote. The conclusion Badiou draws from this is surprising but consequent. And it's crazy. I like this passage, although I maybe don't totally agree with it. Namely, Badiou claims that by their very existence, women are atheists. They embody resistance to one God, denouncing it as a fiction. Here is this wonderful quote, my translation from French into English, from Badiou's book. A woman is always by herself a terrestrial proof that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't have to exist. It is sufficient to take a look at a woman 
what is called really to take a look, to be immediately convinced that one can well do without God. This is why in traditional societies women are hidden. Things are here more serious than a vulgar sexual jealousy. Tradition knows that in order to keep, to keep God alive in whatever way, women have to be kept absolutely invisible." End of quote. Today, however, when the reign of the symbolic one is weakened, the hierarchy of roles and places under a divine name of the Father is becoming largely irrelevant. To fill in this void, a new one, the figure of one, subjectivity, is emerging. A hedonist consumer caught in market competition, enjoying life and simultaneously a ruthless manipulator in how he or she does it. Here, sexual difference re-enters unexpectedly. Men are more and more ludic adolescents, outlaws, women appear as hard, mature, serious, legal and punitive subjects. This is why, as Badiou claims, there is a bourgeois feminism bent on domination. Women are today not called by the ruling ideology to be subordinated. They are called, solicited, expected to be judges, administrators, ministers, CEOs, teachers, even police women and soldiers. A paradigmatic scene occurring daily in our security institutions is that of a feminine teacher, judge, psychologist, taking care of an immature, asocial, young male delinquent. A new figure of the one is thus arising, a cold competitive agent of power, seductive and manipulative, attesting to the paradox that in the condition of today's capitalism, women can do better than men. There is a political triad which renders perfectly this predicament, I think. Hillary, Duterte, Trump. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are today's ultimate political couple. Trump is precisely, following Badiou's diagnosis, the eternal adolescent, a reckless hedonist prone to, prone to irrational, brutal outbursts that hurt his chances, while Hillary exemplifies the new feminine one, a self-controlled, ruthless manipulator who recklessly explodes, exploits her femininity and presents herself as caring for the marginal victims and so on. Her femininity makes her all the more efficient in manipulation. So one should not be seduced by her image as the victim of Bill, Bill Clingston, uh, 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 joyful philandering about allowing women to suck him and so on. Bill Clinton was the, the true clown, while she was the master in the relationship, allowing her servant small irrelevant pleasures. Like, I imagine her, Bill, go, go there, Monica is waiting for you to suck you. Leave me alone to do serious manipulations planning. What then about Rodrigo Duterte? the Philippine president openly soliciting extrajudicial murders of drug addicts and dealers, going up to comparing himself positively, of course, with Hitler. He stands for the decay of the rule of law, 
for the transformation of state power into an extra-legal mob rule administering its wild justice. As such, he does what it is not yet permitted to do openly in our civilized, so-called civilized Western countries. So if we condense the three into one, I think this would be the ideal image of the politician today, a person called Hillary Duterte, middle name Trump, <laughs> all three together. As for the, now comes next problematic, more philosophical point. As for the underlying form of subjectivity, which is operative in this shift, we are clearly dealing with a new version of so-called, what was for a long time called in psychoanalysis, in social psychoanalysis, the post-traditional protean subject. Today, the hegemonic form of subjectivity is no longer the autonomous Protestant subject subordinated to the paternal Oedipal law which guarantees his or her moral freedom, but a fluid subject, a subject who experiences itself as permanently reinventing and reconstructing itself, joyfully experimenting with combinations of different identities. The parad paradigmatic theorist of this new form of subjectivity is Judith Butler. And although she insists on its subversive character, it is easy to demonstrate that such a subjectivity, you know, permanently reconstructing itself through, uh, uh, through, uh, through performatively enacting, assuming different positions and so on, uh, a subjectivity rejecting any fixed identity, obsessed with playful discursive reinvention, fits perfectly our consumerist commodified society. This is why the obsessive attacks on patriarchy and Oedipal order sound, at least for me, false and desperate. They attack an enemy who is in full retreat reacting to something new which is already hegemonic. In short, the problem with this vision of a new fluid subjectivity, it's not that it is utopian, but that it is already predominant. Yet another case of the hegemonic ideology presenting itself as subversive and transgressive. Uh, now, this, of course, appears to be, but I think it's not the central conflict today. Forces of freedom, plurality, reinvention versus new forms of religious or whatever fundamentalism. I think this is ultimately a pseudo-struggle, which is lost in advance. Uh, the first problem I see here is that one cannot distinguish in a direct way the universal dimension of the emancipatory project and the identity of a particular way of life. So that, as liberals are telling us, while we are all together engaged in a universal struggle for freedom, uh, equality, and so on, tolerance, and so on, we should simultaneously fully respect the right of each group to its particular way of life. One should never forget that for a subject 
who lives a particular way of life. All universals appear to him colored by this specific way of life. Each identity, each way of life, comprises also a specific way to relate to other ways of life. So when we posit as a guideline that each group should be left to enact its particular identity, to practice its own way of life, the problem immediately arises. Where do customs that form my identity stop and where does injustice begin? Are women's rights just our custom or is the struggle for women's rights also universal and in this sense part of the emancipatory struggle? Is homophobia just a thing of particular culture to be tolerated as a component of its identity? Should arrange marriages which form the very core of the kinship structures of some societies, should they also be accepted as part of a particular identity where to draw the line? The task is here, I think, to bring the struggle into every particular way of life. Each particular way of life is antagonistic full of inner tensions and inconsistencies. And the only way to proceed is to work for an alliance of struggles in different cultures. From here, I would like to return to the project, which is, of course, the alpha and omega of today's left, of the alliance between progressive middle classes fighting for LGBT uh, tolerance and so on, and the so-called nomadic proletarians, all these third world refugees. In terms of concrete problematic, this means that the politico-economic struggle against global capitalism and the struggle for sexual freedoms, tolerance, and so on, have to be conceived as two forms, the two forms of aspects of the same struggle, which is, I claim, extremely difficult. All the desperate calls for the unification of struggles. I know there, there are some wonderful, almost, uh, almost uh, uh, dreamy scenes that I remember. For example, my friend showed me photos of how in, uh, in a small Palestinian village uh, close to Jerusalem, there were effectively two, three years ago demonstrations protesting Israeli activity where it was incredible. Uh, Muslim women, totally covered, walked together with transgender and feminists dressed in an extremely provocative way and so on and so on. Okay, I almost cried, it's beautiful, but I claim it cannot be universalized. I don't share the hope of some of my leftist friends that you see, you see, it's the beginning and slowly, slowly we will have the majority. Uh, I don't think this will happen because I think that uh, today's predominant form of anti-sexist struggle in developed Western countries is to such an extent constrained by our own ideological coordinates that it's simply impossible to unify it with third world economic uh, uh, struggles, struggles against Western domination. Maybe 
the phrase class struggle and anti-sexist struggle conceal a hidden hard choice, one or the other, never, never both of them. In spite of all the rhetoric of solidarity, today's actual nomadic proletarians, immigrants from non-Western countries, and today's actual anti-sexist movements cannot find the same language. To construct a shared space for both of them is a difficult task that requires long and hard work of self-transformation from both sides from both sides. Not only will the immigrants have to change profoundly their identity, really radically, abandon their way of, uh, their way of reproducing themselves through family ties, but also here, all these, uh, you know, I call them the people who fight here for, uh, for uh, anti-sexist and so on. Uh, 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 who uh, uh, causes, but express abstract solidarity with immigrants. It's not enough. The way they are, you cannot unite them without radical self-transformation on both sides. Second general point, I want to make it here. I think that one of the main, if not the main ideological obstacle to this unity in the West is political correctness. Why? No, it's not people usually accuse me then when I attack political correctness, I do it for egotist reasons to justify my propensity to make dirty, tasteless jokes and so on. <laughs> it's not as simple as that. I want to begin by a quote from Edward Bond that perhaps you know it. If you can't face Hiroshima in the theater, you'll eventually end up in Hiroshima itself. This is, I think, the best argument against those who oppose graphic descriptions of sexual violence and other atrocities, dismissing them as participating in the same violence these descriptions pretend to critically analyze and reject. For example, in a very critical review of my own intervention at the Walter Benjamin Conference in Ramallah, a little bit less than a year ago, the writer in some uh, German journal, I forgot where, uh, claims that I enumerate, quote now, criticism of me, a detailed list of ritualized sexual violences taking place outside of the Islamic world, thus showing his, mine, willingness to accompany honor killings with matching atrocities. He, me, was each time rhetorically apologetic about his descriptions. It's really hard for me to talk about this and so on. And each time he came back with more obscene, bloody and graphic details. This is sufficient to grasp the pointlessness and ambivalence of his intervention, displaying concerns about sexual violence by subjecting the watchful audience to the violence of crude images of heinous sexual practices. In other words, because what I did there in Ramallah was I totally supported their own struggle against honor killings and so on, and I claimed that nonetheless that what women suffer there is just part of a 
general plague of horrors going on today from Mexico to Canada and so on. I was accused of just reproducing the same horrors. This, I think, is the prototype of politically correct line of argumentation. In order, I claim, to really grasp sexual violence, one has to be shocked, traumatized even, by it. If we constrain ourselves to aseptic technical descriptions, we do exactly the same as those who refer to torture as enhanced interrogation technique or to rape as enhanced seduction technique. It is only the taste of the real thing that effectively vaccinate us against it. And we can already see the consequences of such a stance of protection. When at the beginning of September of this year, two months ago, Facebook censored the iconic napalm girl photo of a terrified nine-year-old girl, Vietnamese girl, running away from napalm bombs, it hypocritically justified it as a defense against displaying child nudity, which can count as child pornography. Of course, ignoring the obvious political dimension. Along these lines, the one whom I appreciate very much, Nikki Johnson Houston, it's an American black lawyer, wrote a wonderful letter to the public where he describes eloquently how, quote, white liberals have hijacked the conversation about diversity, political correctness, and what topics we should be outraged about. Now comes the long quote. My problem with liberalism is that it's more concerned with policing people's language and thoughts without requiring them to do anything to fix the problem. White liberal college students speak of safe spaces, trigger words, microaggressions, and white privilege while not having to do anything or, more importantly, give up anything. They can't even have a conversation with someone who sees the world differently without resorting to call him or her a racist, homophobic, misogynistic, bigot, and trying to have him or her banned from campus or ruin them and their reputation. They say they feel black people's pain because they took a trip to Africa to help the disadvantaged, but are unwilling to go to a black neighborhood in the city in which they live. These same college students will espouse the joys of diversity, but will in the same breath assume you are only on campus because of affirmative action or that all black people grew up in poverty." End of quote. Therein resides, I think, the political problem with political correctness. To repeat Robespierre, it admits the injustices of the actual life, but it wants to cure them with a, what Robespierre called revolution without revolution, in exact parallel, incidentally, to today's consumerism, which offers coffee without caffeine, chocolate without sugar, beer without alcohol, multiculturalism without violent clashes, and so on and so on. We have everything today, these uh, censored, aseptic, politically correct versions. For example, so-called Native Americans. We call them once Indians. I much prefer the term Indians, incidentally. As they do also, my 
so-called Indian friends. You know what they told me? No, I'm not a Native American. Because if I'm Native nature, what are you, white culture? I prefer to be called Indian, because in this way, at least my name is a monument to the stupidity of white men who thought they discovered India, and so on. You have to really encounter all those protective victims to see how they hate this politically correct uh, approach, and so on, and so on. And they are so sensitive about the dangers of patronizing them. For example, a friend in, uh, in Missoula, Montana, it happened. An academic guy there gave me a small study he wrote proving that Native Americans, Indians, killed more buffaloes and burned more forests than all white people combined there. No, it's not crazy masochism. It's just a wonderful insight into no thanks for your patronizing image of us. You know, the first right of autonomy is I can also be as evil as you, maybe even worse. That's where true anti-racism uh, uh, begins. Uh, so, uh, 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 what liberals want is a vision of social change with no actual change, a change where no blood is spilled, where no one gets really hurt, where well-meaning liberals remain cocooned in their safe, uh, in their safe enclaves. A further consequence of this politically correct speech is the spreading prohibition of irony. When one makes a remark considered non-politically correct, it is less and less possible to save oneself by claiming it was meant ironically. Here I claim opposites coincide again. In the beginning of September of this year, two months ago, uh, media reported that North Korea has forbidden people from making sarcastic comments about Kim Jong-un or his regime in their everyday conversation. Even indirect criticism has been banned. Namely, it's a wonder, Woodlus, uh, that the people in North Korea started to do what? To use in an ironic way the official phrases themselves. For example, as you know, North Korea blames everything on United States. All their misfortunes are because South Korea is still occupied by Americans and so on. So people start at you like somebody doesn't function, a train crashes, there is no food, and people say, oh, this is all America's fault, and so on, and so on. And uh, in a wonderful scene which was reported in media, at one public meeting where, by mistake, one foreigner found himself, uh, a desperate ordinary guy says, listen, we cannot criticize the official regime. Now we cannot even agree with it, because then we can be accused of irony. So what can we do? And in a wonderful symptomatic moment of truth, the functionary from central government said, just shut up and everything, <laughs> and everything will be okay. So uh, now I move to more general points from all this. Uh, we are witnessing today something that one cannot but call the disintegration of what Hegel named Sittlichkeit, not simply morality, but mores, customs, Sitten, the thick background of mostly unwritten rules of social life, which tell us what we can do and what we cannot do. 
This, I claim, is disintegrating on two accounts. Uh, 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 on the one hand, it's, you may have noticed it, more and more possible, and here I'm a classic moralist, I'm for hypocrisy, I'm for keeping the appearances. Namely, I don't know how it is in Germany, but I know from the United States to my own city country, Slovenia, things that it was unimaginable like 10, 50, 10 years ago, not even 20 years ago, for them to say it publicly, now they can be widely propagated publicly and nobody reacts. For example, I must report this to you, what I was shocked by it. It happened in Slovenia two months ago, in the main right-wing weekly magazine, one of their anti-immigrant uh, European racist commentators, published a ferocious attack on uh, George Soros, claiming that, calling him Talmudo Zionist, who is the most dangerous living person on earth. Why? The idea was that he, Soros, is fulfilling, actualizing the old Zionist plan of ruining Western European identity and culture by secretly organizing Muslim immigrants to enter Europe. Uh, and these immigrants are characterized in openly um, racist terms as, uh, as uh, 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 Muslim negroid hordes and so on, whatever. What I like here, I like these excessive moments of ideology because they are the moment of truth. Like, you think that we live in some kind of a conflict between Zionism and Islam. No, to this guy everything is clear. Behind this Muslim invasion of Europe, it's Zionism. It's, it's are the Jews. The Jews are again the hidden masters, so it's all one big plot and so on and so on. Okay, I will not go on and lose time here. What I just wanted to tell you is how surprised I am that nobody reacts to this. People laugh a little bit. They, oh, did you read that idiot, what he wrote there? But it's slowly becoming a common currency to talk like this. So again, I believe what is happening today is again things which were years ago something that belonged to this private domain of dirty rumors, paranoiac uh, uh, ideas, and so on. We all maybe were telling each other all this, but it was private fantasies, as it were, are now becoming a public currency. I will not even enumerate uh, uh, examples of this. All I want to say is that, for me, civilization, in good and in bad, means that you know not only written rules, but the unwritten rules. L let me give you an example which is not a good one. I remember it from when I was serving Yugoslav army in 75-76. In Yugoslav constitution, it says that all languages of Yugoslav federation are equal also in the army, which means Serbo-Croat, Slovene, Macedonian, Albanian, and that only only in commandment the Serbo-Croat language should be used, which I accept. I mean, like, you cannot shout attack in all five languages or whatever. But that's all. But it was a nice example of unwritten rules how 
De facto, in the army, we all had to talk Serbo-Croat. If two of us Slovenes were caught talking among ourselves Slovene, we were immediately accused of nationalism, separatism, and so on and so on. Uh, then, at some political class, one of the soldiers asked the officer, comrade officer, whatever, isn't there a small contradiction here? We have to speak Serbo-Croat, but in constitution it says all languages, official languages, the four that I enumerated, are equal. What happened is that the officer simply told him, you are an idiot, you don't understand anything, if you ask a question like this again, you will be arrested. You, you see how, this is how ideology works in everyday life. It's not only that things are prohibited. The prohibition itself is prohibited. And I will make a jump now, I improvise a lot today. <laughs> Trump is precisely violating this prohibition. For example, he tried to prove, I was quite shocked, in one of his TV interviews that his wife, Melania, who is Slovene, I'm proud to tell you, <laughs> but I'm ashamed, that uh, how, what a great lady she is. And she said something that, I don't want to use the dirty word, flatulence, you know, if you eat too many beans or what. He said that never once in their marriage, marriage did he hear her emitting a sound of flatulence. <laughs> you know what's the problem? The problem is that you don't say this, my God, you know. <laughs> the vulgarity is not in doing this. The vulgarity is in even saying this. Or, uh, the same was with Hillary Clinton. Once Donald Trump made fun of her because she had to disappear for three minutes, uh, probably taking a break for the toilet. And Trump said, I don't want even to imagine what, where she went, it's disgusting, and so on. No, sorry, we all do this. The disgusting thing is to mention this publicly. And Trump can do it, which is why he is, for me, one of the symbols of this, let's call it, disintegration of, uh, disintegration of ethical substance. Uh, I claim that uh, manners matter, because now you can say, but we have serious problems today, the threat of a new world war, ecological catastrophe, and so on. Why talk about manners? Ah, here I am uh, uh, tempted to repeat, you know, the Quincy's famous quip about the simple art of murder, how many people began with a simple murder and ended up behaving badly at a table and so on. I'm tempted to say how many people began with unleashing terror and economic catastrophes and ended up behaving badly at the party. Because I think manners do matter. Sometimes precisely manners are the last thing that separates us from direct barbarism. And here I'm becoming a leftist moralist. I'm claiming that some of us are unfortunately old enough to remember the 60s, where it was, I remember, popular to use the F word, to talk a little bit brutally dirty, to denounce the hypocrisy of the official jargon. But now the right-wingers, populists, are talking like that. And I think the left should shamelessly use the chance 
and present itself as a defender of decency and public manners. We should be this today. Let me go on. Another very tricky uh, topic at this level is uh, uh, Europe, Eurocentrism and so on. I think that another leftist strategy today should be a qualified Eurocentrism. Why? Uh, Today, uh, of course, I don't agree with right-wingers who claim our culture is threatened by Islam, by whoever. I fully admit that the greatest threat today to what is worth saving from European legacy are precisely our anti-immigrant populist defenders of Europe uh, themselves. But uh, we should nonetheless beware of something. If you look at a high-quality critique of dark aspects of European legacy, and there are many of them. Don't forget that Holocaust, uh, colonial horrors, even Gulag, these are ultimately results of European civilization. But if you look closely at it, we have to admit that the very position from which we criticize this, from which we are horrified at this, is a, a European one. Egal radical egalitarianism, feminism, and so on. The idea of us as abstract individuals, where ultimately it doesn't matter if you are men, women, and so on, and so on, is part of European legacy. All other cultures are basically organic. Organic in the sense that each of us at his, her, their proper place within the social edifice. And this is for me why Criticism of Eurocentrism is so popular today. It's not something good. It's a very ominous sign of the fact that, uh, that capitalism is entering a new stage where it no longer needs universal emancipation, freedom, equality, and so on and so on. So this brings me to my next very problematic, for some of you, political point. Uh, it's nice to be un against global Capitalism, But I absolutely don't believe that the ultimate resort of this anti-global capitalist struggle can be some local manners, local communities resisting to it, and so on and so on. I always claim global capitalism is fully multiculturalist. It functions ideally with multitude of local cultures, and so on and so on. Uh, 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 let me give you an example. That I, it happened recently, I found it in the media. In the fall of 2016, a 55 years old former pastor in Santiago Quetzalapa, a remote indigenous community in the south of Mexico, raped an eight years old girl. And the local court condemned him to buy the girl's father two crates of beer as punishment. Then feminist groups from Mexico City protested. And the answer was what? Was that, sorry, in this city, indigenous communities are ruled by a system popularly known as usos y costumbres, traditions and customs, supposed to enshrine the traditions of local populations in a state with diverse 
indigenous groups. So, uh, you see, they wanted to do something noble, not just this bourgeois abstract law, let's include into our legal system the wisdom, thousand years old wisdom of local communists and so on and so on. The result is what? The result is that, because this is part of their tradition or whatever, that you rape eight-year-old girl and you are punished by paying, uh, uh, by having to buy two crates of beer and many other examples and so on and so on. So what I want to say is that we have to be courageous enough to admit that these famous local traditions uh, are not really a site of resistance, something from where we can attack what is wrong with global capitalism. I think that the problem with global capitalism is precisely that it's not, uh, it's precisely that it's not global enough. I don't have time to go in detail here, and so I will just go to the, my concluding moments, to the title of my talk, Finally, Rage, Rebellion, New Power. That's the problem of all this. Ultimately, the problem of populism is for me something that, referring to Noam Chomsky, we can call a crisis in manufacturing consent. Our political system is not just a set of explicit rules, written, unwritten, but it's a lot of customs of how things effectively function, and that no longer works. And Populism is one of the ways to fill in this uh, void. What's our problem today? Uh, we know that this triad, rage, rebellion, and the new power, is a kind of a basic triad of every revolutionary process. First, there is chaotic rage. People are not satisfied. They show it in a more or less violent way, without any clear goal and organization. Then, when this rage gets articulated, organized, we get a rebellion with a minimal organization and more or less clear awareness of who the enemy is. Finally, if rebellion succeeds, the new power confronts the immense task of organizing the new society. The problem is that we almost never get this triad in its logical progression. Chaotic rage gets diluted or turns into a rightist populism. Rebellion succeeds but loses steam and so on and so on. So this is why in our societies more and more rage is not only the beginning but also the end, the outcome of failed emancipatory projects. Remember, I always remember them. Uh, uh, ten years ago, how the French suburban riots were exploding, where thousands of cars were burning and there were ma major outbursts of public violence in suburbs of Paris and so on. What strikes the eye in these protests, what striked the eye was the total absence of any positive utopian prospect. If May 68 was a revolt with a utopian vision, the 2005 revolts were outbursts with no pretense to vision. If the old, oft-repeated commonplace that we live in a post-ideological era has any sense, it is here. There was no, prob there was no 
program. And this tells a lot about our predicament. Because as even Axel Honneth noticed in his last book, Idea de Socialismus, Idea of Socialism, the great paradox of our situation is that there is a growing dissatisfaction with global capitalism, which often explodes in rage, but it is less and less possible to articulate this rage into a new leftist political project. So this is how things disintegrate back into rage. But let's take the example where we had a success. There was a new power, the victory of Syriza in Greece. I think it's a genuine tragedy what happened there. I totally oppose to those idiots who simply shout betrayal, betrayal, Syriza, uh, 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 won a referendum and then were afraid to act upon it. No, I think that uh, when people blame that uh, capitulation or whatever you call it of Syriza, the, the usual counter-argument is that Syriza forgot or obliterated its links to actual social movements. That the moment Syriza took power already before, it was no longer what was its strength, the network of local movement, feminist, workers' rights, ecological. It simply became another party competing for state power. I think that this exactly is a wrong counter-argument to make. I don't think that keeping links, with, uh, with social, keeping, uh, links alive with social base, maintaining roots in actual social movements, this is simply an excuse. The big problem is, not, is precisely that the left didn't yet invent a formula of effectively, how should I put it, what to do when you take power how to reorganize power. We have two, three models. We have real socialist, communist, Stalinist model. It didn't work. We see it clearly. We have social democratic model, welfare state. It worked as long as it worked. It didn't work at the end. Today, it, frankly, no, it, I mean, the tragedy is, with some exceptions, I admit it, that social democracy is basically today the great conservative power. Their motive is basically, let's not abandon, let's keep our old achievements. We all know that we live in new times where tremendous things are happening. I'm not ideologically blinded by them, but just think about two, three of them, about eight so-called cooperative commons. I don't believe that this is already a new communism. But obviously, the market economy is gradually overcoming itself. Or just think philosophically about what the new digitalization of our lives, but digitalization combined with uh, uh, biogenetics and so on, brain sciences, leads to. We will be more and more dominated by digital machines, and I'm not even afraid of it. Look, it can already be proven. I read some wonderful experiments with, they did it in the United States. They, in so many levels, for example, 
in even in stock market investing, do you know that you already can download for free a program which is demonstrated through experiments, which will tell you when to buy to sell your stocks better than the most expensive stockbrokers, advisors, and so on and so on. Machines know it better. Machines already can uh, diagnose you better than at least the average doctor. Some progressive leftist, I like this cynicism, uh, sociologist, even proved that computers can do it better in elections. Because we are uh, stupid, confused people. You hate the ruling government, but that usually through some last-minute spin, spins and manipulations. You vote for something immediately before elections, out of fear and so on, which goes against your interests. What they, my friends, did it is people, selected people, allowed the computer to follow their everyday experience, all the disappointment with politics, economics, and so on. And then computer, who kept the entire picture, decided how to vote. It was much more to the left, even. <laughs> even they decided that with marriage, they... Again, to two sets of the people whom will you marry, not computer, a computer did better. And but, I mean, these are not naive science fiction people. They are not claiming computers uh, cannot make mistakes. No, they are also stupid and so on. They are just saying on average they are doing much better than our daily life. So where are we coming? We have just different fantasies here. One fantasy is so-called singularity. Total idiots, I think so, like Ray Kurzweil and so on, you know. We are all perpetrating the moment when we will uh, all uh, com be combined into one big uh, mega post-human awareness. Or we will simply be reduced to idiots, to puppets manipulated digitally or through biogenetic and so on and so on. But my prediction is that something third will happen, the combination of the two. What do I mean by this? You know, I always remember here one of my favorite Stalinist jokes, that in the mid-30s they were debating in the Politburo, will there be money in communism or not? And the right-wing Bukharian people claimed, of course, it's natural to have money to exchange products, so money is natural, there will have to be money in communism. Left-wingers claimed, no, money means alienated commodity societies, there will not be money in communism. Then... Comrade Stalin, the greatest union, intervenes and says, no, these are both deviations, left-wing, right-wing deviations. The reality is a dialectical synthesis. There will be and there will not be money in communism. <laughs> then they ask Stalin, but how do you mean this Comrade Stalin? And he says, well, it's simple. Some people will have money, others will <laughs> not have money, no? And uh, my point is that it's the same with this digitalization, you know. Some people will lose their freedom, other people will not lose their freedom. And, I mean, there are such complex things happening today. What will happen, again, with cooperative commons? With, I think the big problem I see with... We already see the tendencies to post-market economy. It's clear. It's clear. It's clear that the way... Intellectual property functions today. It more and more undermines private property. 
and I even see potentially a progressive element in all these ultra-capitalist horrors like uh, Uber taxes and so on and so on. Something new is emerging. We don't yet have concrete ideas what to do. You know, to be very brief, short, you know what's the problem for me? Uh, did you see the film which I don't like very much, but that's why I'm mentioning it to you, uh, V for Vendetta with Natalie Portman and so on. You remember how the film ends. The crowd attacks the British Parliament, victory of the revolution, end of the film. As I usually say, my God, I'm ready to sell my mother into slavery, to see a film called V for Vendetta Part 2. But what happens then, next day? How do they organize new power and so on? We, I, I don't believe in state socialism, of course not. I don't believe in, no longer in welfare, social democratic uh, uh, capitalism. But I also don't believe, if anything even less, I believe in the last, I claim, remainder of the 20th century that will have to be sacrificed, immediate council democracy, you know. What is still alive for 20th century is this idea against alienated representational politics, local communities, organizing their life, and so on and so on. I think this is a horrible vision. It's totally wrong politically and so on. First, no, local communities with living self-management, self-organization cannot save us. I literally, I'm not joking, I will again be accused of provocations. I think we need more alienation, precisely alienation in the sense of efficient bureaucracy. If I have a problem today, it's bureaucratic socialism. Now you will say horror, GDR, Stalinism. No, don't you see if you read, and I do with pleasure always, old Stalinist texts, the biggest problem of Stalinism was bureaucracy. Stalinism couldn't organize a well-functioning bureaucracy. That's why it always needed an emergency state. Uh, I, an ideal social model for me is not some stupid local community where every afternoon I have to go to some debate group, how we will distribute water, how we will... No, I want to live in a nice alienated society where there is an invisible relatively well-functioning network which provides water, electricity, health, and so on. And I want to be left alone to watch movies, to read and write my books, and so on, and so on. First problem. Second problem. What we need today the, with the problems we are confronting, intellectual property, ecology, uh, uh, brain sciences, and so on. Immigrants. We need more and more strong, large-scale organizations, I claim. Just think about uh, Fukushima. Do you know my friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, who was there immediately after? He is a, a, a theorist of catastrophes and was sent by European Union. He said that, do you know that for a couple of hours, Japanese authorities thought that the radiations will be so strong that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people. Where would they go? How? We need even stronger than state, larger organizations. I mean, uh, local communities as are wonderful insofar as they 
local self-organized communities insofar as they work. But I always claim for them to work, quite many things have to function imperceptibly in the background. And that's where the battle is decided. Okay, we debate how to, how to organize health, but for this you have to have large hospitals which work. How to distribute water electricity, who organizes that, and so on, and so on. So, uh, uh, another thing, that's the true, if you ask me, tragedy for me. Uh, I will not name your names, but I'm sad that I cannot, for ethical reasons. I spoke with many well-known leftists recently, really big names, who all privately, like in secret, literally, told me that, you know, the only hope for us today is a big mega-catastrophe. Not just 1,000 dead, but at least a couple of hundreds of thousand dead. That such a radical catastrophe is the only thing that can awaken people and to make them to take seriously social change and so on and so on. But this makes me even sad. Where are we when the radical left literally not only awaits mega-catastrophe as their only chance, but even some of the leftists told me maybe we should even risk it to organize this catastrophe, to explode a couple, a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, uh, how do you call it, uh, atomic energy, nuclear uh, electric plants, and so on and so on. Uh, this is for me just another thing in this uh, hopelessness. We don't have a model. And uh, I think that in spite of all these problems, now I will finish, although the picture is bleak, we have to persist. Namely, if the picture is so dark as I painted it, then you can say, but my God, why don't simply resign to a radical change? Why don't we say, okay, let's play the modest game that goes on. Modest, small changes, maybe it will work. No, I am more of a pessimist. I think that we are today approaching and although Chomsky really hates me, but uh, a good friend of mine recently visited Chomsky, now, two weeks ago, and told me something very sad, that Chomsky in private, drinking coffee after the official interview, told him that he's already active politically for 60 years, and that now, now, I mean the last month, Chomsky told him he's for the first time really desperate. He really thinks that ecology, possibility of new world war, Russia, Western Europe, and so on, that he thinks we are on the edge of a catastrophe. So the problem is not uh, should, should we resign ourselves. The problem is that something will have to be done. I prefer not to think what type of society we are approaching, and we even know it in some sense, I claim. Who is we here? We are a collective ideological subject which is formed by Hollywood, and my God, Hollywood knows it. You remember all, all these big uh, post-apocalyptic uh, blockbusters that we have now? They all paint the same society which fits very much the image uh, painted by uh, Peter Sloterdijk in his book on the cupola of capitalism. You know, the privileged 20 percent living under a cupola, protected, the majority is outside, 
So we are all aware of the need of a radical change. People often attack me. Why are you taking seriously Sloterdijk? He is a neo-Nazi, eugenic, whatever. Maybe, but read his book, uh, uh, his... uh, 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 I forgot which one of his latest books. He wonderfully, sorry, uh, develops this idea. My God, he gets pretty radical. He claims that... Wait a minute, read him what he claims. He claims that because of ecological catastrophe and other threats, the idea of sovereign nation-state and capitalism is self-destructive. He says this. He says that that, uh, if there is a lesson from ecology, it's that capitalism has this inbuilt tendency of ignoring as collateral damage this costs which you don't have to pay for to the environment and so on and so on. And quite correctly, he joins hands here, Sloterdijk of all people, with David Harvey and so on, who says that we cannot solve this problem as some left Keynesians dream or feminist Keynesians so that we include into the price of the commodity also all these collateral Costs. I mean, I read some of their books, they are wonderful utopian reading. The idea is that they try to calculate, I don't know how many trillions of dollars, the cost of entire water supply of Earth. And then if you use water, it should be added to the price of a commodity. Or the idea is women's homework, non-paid, taking care of children, if they still do it, and so on, they should also be given a salary for that. But I think this is precisely a model of utopia, of how you want to overexpand a model. No, the problem is to get out of capitalist logic. It's the only way, that, of course, I don't, where do I absolutely not agree with Sloterdijk, is that he just correctly concludes that first this state sovereignty logic, where the greatest heroic act is war sacrifice yourself for your country and so on, and this capitalist logic of neglecting consequences and so on, that it's a matter of our survival to step out of this. Then, being Sloterdijk, he, of course, doesn't give any realistic or even minimally concrete plans, ideas even, of how to do this, who will do it, how it will be done, and so on and so on. But I claim that uh, I don't I don't claim anything, basically. I don't, I don't have a clear idea here. But I absolutely claim that we are approaching a potential catastrophe. And maybe we are getting caught into some kind of a weird moral immersion. Look, you, you remember 30 years ago, 40 years ago, even more, Vietnam War. There was still, even for Iraq war, big demonstrations and so on. But today much worse things are happening. Look at the ultra-tragedy of Aleppo today in Syria. Even out of egotist reasons, out of the meanest egotist reasons, we should be more mobilized. My God, we can see there hundreds of thousands of you new refugees in the making. No, we are just apathetic. Or look at all this Putin, Western Europe, United States madness. Are we aware that we are already entering the climate of the next world war? 
Our situation is not, as people claim, now we have new fascism, it's like Western Europe in the 1930s. No, I think a much better metaphor is the years before the Great War, before the First World War, where everyone was talking about the war, and then the big surprise was that the war really exploded. Why? Because everyone was talking about it, but nobody took it seriously. You know, they... And I think, isn't this our deepest attitude towards, if you ask me, of the majority of us, attitude towards ecological threat? We are well aware there are dangers, but deeply existentially we, we cannot even imagine that, you know, that our daily, like, you go out, my God, look, you know, now it's not, okay, but when it is, it's spring, it's sun, birds are singing, what can change, and so on. It can. I think our situation today, again, is the situation before First World War. And from what I read in the media, are we aware what is going on? Um, United States putting uh, their battalions on the border of Russia. Russia already, my friends from Russia, sent me messages which are terrifying. They told me they already organized in the big cities exercises for nuclear attack and so on and so on. And again, this is the tragedy. The fact that you are not taking it seriously is for me precisely the fact that makes it realistic that it will happen. And if you ask me what's my solution, the only thing I will tell you is that I'm a pessimist. But maybe pessimists are the only happy people, you know, in a very stupid common sense. If you are a pessimist, then you are, since things are usually not so absolutely bad, then you are all the time in small details happily surprised, you know. For me, a pessimist is the only way to be a little bit glad. You see, nonetheless, this happened, that happened. I, I... Uh, the, that's the problem. I see today the situation as potentially revolutionary in the very traditional Marxist sense. Forces of production are developing in a way which makes them incompatible with our economic social order and so on. And if we don't do something, we will live in, you know, where from the movies, like Elysium, like Hunger Games, and so on, and so on. And I think that uh, here, again, I don't have time to develop it, I did it in my books, but uh, I don't think the language we should speak is this language of open situation, or we can make a choice, and so on, and so on. No, it's a closed, I'm a fatalist. I, uh, uh, namely, uh, I think that we have to accept that we are lost. There will be a war, but maybe we can postpone it, we can, you know, and that sometimes the only way to avoid the catastrophe is to accept it as unavoidable. Like, my good friend Frank Ruda recently published a book in English, I think only in German, a plea, a defense of fatalism. And I'm ready to follow it, namely, in what sense? People like to say how the past is determined, the past is what it was, while the future is open. We have a choice. I claim more and more that exactly the opposite is true. The future is closed. 
it's our fate. We are caught in dynamic, while the past is open. As we learned from Benjamin, from I don't know who, we can change it. Of course, not in reality, but the point is not to say how we can act differently, but to, re to change the past itself. We should take the lesson of Protestantism, of predestination, which is for me, as already my good friend Frederick Jensen emphasized, the most interesting notion for a Marxist from theology is the Protestant notion of predestination. Because it's the exact opposite of radical fatalism. And I will say predestination means everything is determined. Yes, everything is determined, but you, know, you don't know in what way, in what sense is determined. What is freedom, actual freedom? Imagine you are in a situation where you have to choose strawberry cake or cheesecake. That's freedom in a stupid sense, totally non-interesting. Remember yourself in a situation where somebody tells you it's predestined what you will do. You don't have a choice. But you don't know what is predestined. And then you sweat, you are afraid that you will not miss your destiny. And in this absolute anxiety, not to miss the inevitable, you get close to true freedom. We must do something like that. Okay, I've spoken too much. I'm grateful for your patience. Thank you very much. Sorry, can I add a, a, a short thing? Because people often accuse me of being anti-immigrant and so on. No, my God, I'm absolutely for immigrants. I just think that any idealization of immigrants is directly feeding the anti-immigrant racist. I think we should not, for example, recently I gave an interview to a local Al Jazeera, and I raised a simple question for, for and because of this, the interview was immediately cut short. They told me, you know, this, oh, why don't you accept Western Europe more refugees? And I simply told them, listen, you are from Qatar. Qatar competes with Liechtenstein and Singapore for the richest per capita country in the world. And I asked them, how many refugees did Qatar accept? You probably know the answer, none. All these extremely wealthy Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, practically zero. Why this? What geopolitics is going on there? And so on and so on. I mean, we don't have to be afraid to ask these questions. Sorry. No, okay. <laughs> I think uh, thank you for this um, uh, amusing hour and uh, the shock and awe um, you presented to us. I, I think we should immediately open to the public if there are questions. Um, um, you know what would be my ideal debate? I will tell you yeah. that I say something, yeah. answer, and then they have to guess and ask the right question. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> But as they so, tell you, the situation is not yet mature for that, no, unfortunately. But let's begin. So, uh, 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 let's simulate the question. Yeah. Um, I, you tell me that you didn't do your Stalinist job and distribute the questions in advance? Uh, uh, 
I did it, but I don't follow. And um, um, but you know, I have some intellectual problems also. And um, uh, and, and my, my my intellectual problem was always uh, Alain Badiou, uh, because he's always telling the truth, and I don't understand the truth. And I don't understand the truth. Yeah. Uh, taught by Badiou and by uh, Zizek, so I don't understand your Badiou. Yeah. But let, let me ask you because, the question. It's, it's, because it's, you know that we are all the time in deep, I know. friendly, but deep I know, polemics. I know. Probably, uh, probably this is a problem. And yeah. um, um, so my question is, uh, it's, it, it, yeah. it's about men and women. Yeah, this was uh, uh, yeah. the question. Um, so uh, men looking at women and uh, women looking at uh, men, yeah. yes? Um, and I have this example of, um, of, um, of uh, Trump and yeah. Hillary Clinton. So is it correct? Did I understand um, um, but you and you correctly that when uh, Trump is looking at Hillary Clinton, he knows that God no longer exists? And if Hillary is looking at that Trump, uh, that God exists? No, but... Incidentally, I know this not through Melania. I know people who know people who know people yeah. who know Trump and uh, uh, Hillary. And I can guarantee you something. Trump is an atheist. So okay, I don't, yeah. I'm not saying he had to look at Hillary Clinton to see this. You see, that's uh, the great thing that Trump did. Are we aware that he single-handedly ruined the, the conservative Christian moral majority? He is an obscene consumerist. He is a nightmare for them. And I think, I mean, Trump is a nightmare, but uh, I think that he wasn't the worst. Look, you remember those uh, Republican preliminary debates. The true monster is for me Ted Cruz. Total monster. I think that I even have some, now you can get my anti-immigrant right-wing, I have doubts that Ted Cruz is uh, human. Maybe he is Indian <laughs> monster. You have to see how that guy, you have certain crazy fundamentalist American Republicans where there is really something absolutely monstrous at them. No, so, sorry, what I want to say is that I know what is problematic there with this Trump versus Hillary, and I don't read but you as giving a general theory of sexual difference to that, so on and so on, but as a very vague description of typical, very strong role offered to young men and offered to women today. And I don't think even Hillary is specific here. I think that already Sarah Palin was, but she was so stupid, she couldn't play it, was the first candidate for this, let's call it, post-feminist uh, woman mm. or whatever. As for sexual difference and so on, I know I got into some trouble with LGBT, but in some sense, practically, I fully support them. What I just don't agree with is the status of sexual difference in the sense of a basic antagonism which defines sexuality. Okay, my theory is not that, that, uh, that LGBT transgender people are perverts which don't fit, who don't fit the big official binary. You are a, a either masculine or feminine. I would have said that the basic lesson of Lacan, when he repeats how in the Apada Rapport Sexuel there is no sexual relationship, is that sexual difference is an antagonism which always fails, never works. 
that there is a failure inscribed into every sexual identity, and that in this sense, the transgender people are the symptom of it all. They are the most radical. They bring out an impossibility which is part of the impossibility of, again, gender identities and so on and so on. So I was deeply shocked by that fanatical reaction. I was practically lynched in the United States for that text about transgender problems and so on. Because, uh, uh, like, uh, you know what bothers me with, and we can debate, I'm now consciously trying to provoke you with transgender people. I totally sympathize with the horror of their situation and so on and so on. I, and I know, I know some of them, how, you know, like if you look at these gay parades and so on, you would have thought transgender, beautiful, some uh, Delezian affirmative joy, wonder. No, it's very painful. It's agonist and so on, but not painful agonist in the sense of deviation from the norm. It's a deviation immanent to the norm itself. I will not go further into it. Just one example from cinema, if you allow me. Uh, I love two films, very different, but basically similar. Did you see the two films? One is Neil Jordan's The Crying Game, and the other is Cronenberg's uh, M. Butterfly. They both have a similar story. A guy gets passionately in love with a beautiful woman, and when they, for the first time, decide to make love, you have that famous scene, which I find hilarious because it's a reversal of Freud's scene of fetishism, which is, you know, the woman gets naked and then, oh, she doesn't have a penis or whatever. Here, the problem is that she, she does have a penis, no? Okay, now, how are we to read this? Not, I claim, in the sense of they are horrified at their own latent homosexuality, but that it's a very radical Lacanian thesis that from the male side, heterosexual love is, from the male side, unconsciously, secretly homosexual. The ultimate dream of a man is that the femme fatale he tries to seduce is a man dressed as a woman. So uh, this is why Lacan says something wonderful, that the only true heterosexuals are lesbians, and then there are two types of homosexuality, uh, heterosex, what we call heterosexuals and gays. So what I'm saying is that, you see, this is the problem I have with all these movements, LGBT. Aren't they not getting that they have so many symptoms? Like, you know that now LGBT, and they're already afraid that they will exclude something. So you have now LGBTQIA and so on, and then it goes on, so they save it by adding a plus. LGBT plus. And for me, this is a symptom. But I stop, I talk too much. Uh, these are some. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. There are some we questions. Have, yeah. We have, uh, I think and we I have. I answered them, but okay. We have some well prepared uh, questions here. Uh, please begin. Um, so you've elaborated a bit about phenomenons uh, of digitalization. Uh, my question would be, there seems to be this fascinating uh, alliance of very different people like Stephen Hawking or Elon Musk or 
all pointing out prominently that artificial intelligence, which you can control, yeah. uh, is, is the, the largest like artificial intelligence which we can control, brought up by Stephen Hawking, all yeah, mass, yeah. very different people, is the biggest threat for um, our free societies. What, what do you think about that based on what you explained and how could the left you know, empowering policy towards here, an, AI yeah. look like? Thank here you. I am a, an old-fashioned philosopher and I would say almost in a Heideggerian mode that my first question is this one. When somebody like Hawking, who is not a very good philosopher, I mean, in the beginning of his previous book, he claims triumphantly philosophy is dead, no? And then on the next page, he articulates this thesis in the most vulgar philosophy you can imagine. But my problem is this one. When he says the greatest threat to humanity to human freedom. Okay, my problem is what pre for how do you call it for verständnis, what previous understanding of human freedom he has to claim this? What does he understand by human freedom? What does he mean by human freedom? Is human freedom a free choice? Okay, what is a free choice? Is a free choice a choice which is not predetermined? No, it's not enough. Because let's say that there is a process which is definitely not deterministic. Let us say that when I, sorry for the stupid example, that when I decide when I go to, to patisserie, uh, chocolate cake or strawberry cake, that it's a genuinely open situation in the sense that some totally contingent quantum fluctuation in my mind, which cannot be predetermined, decides my choice. But if it's a total external contingency, then this still is not freedom. We don't mean by freedom this. So what, this is what, uh, I think what they have, they, Hawking and others, they commit a double mistake. First, they usually presuppose a very naive humanist notion of freedom, which I think is not radical enough. A lesson, I think, I don't have time to go on, sorry, but things are so interesting here. For example, I'm not against freedom. Because things are, do you know Benjamin Libet, who, the, who made that famous experiment demonstrating that before you make a contingent choice, your neurons' brains already know it split of a second before. Okay, so for our vulgar common sense, this should have been a proof that we don't have a freedom of the will. Because when we freely decide something, before us deciding, the process is already on the way. But interestingly enough, Benjamin Libet himself doesn't give this reading. He gives an extremely refined Hegelian reading, claiming that, yes, every choice is predetermined. But the primordial form of freedom is not to decide what do you want, but to sabotage your decision. And that this saying, okay, I'm not going, what I want to say is another, it's, there are so, second problem, noticed very nicely by the book, which is a popular book, but interesting, this big hit now, uh, Jovel Harari, Homo Deus, is that how even people who advocate the fact that there is no freedom of the will, but still, the way they argue, they 
you know, like the way they describe the situation, it's as if the same free individual is at some level still here, simply stay. You know, there is a way of stating I am not free, which leaves you out of the affair perfectly safe and so on and so on. Here, I have a great appreciation for, I think, even works or did. Is he in Berlin? Thomas Metzinger, your great uh, uh, brain scientist where uh, he asked a very serious question, no, which was, if we accept the result of brain sciences that there is no free will, or rather no substantial self, can we really assume this subjectively? Is this just something that we rationally accept, or can we live in that way? And his answer is that there is only a certain type of Buddhist enlightenment which accepts this. Uh, so what I'm saying is that uh, the first thing, I didn't answer your question, I just complicated it, no? that uh, the first thing I would have said is we have to be much more precise here as philosophers. What do, we, what do we mean by, because my problem, my first problem would be that if we accept the results of brain sciences and so on, then we don't really have a choice of freedom of unfreedom. We are already now not free, we just don't accept it. You know, this is my problem, for example, with Habermas. I appreciate, okay, okay. He's the big other, the terrorist, yeah, yeah. Now, now uh, I know how it functions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we are running completely out of time. Uh, so there was another uh, that was last... My, that was my intention, <laughs> so that now I can say hypocritically, I'm so sorry that I cannot stay for another hour. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we would allow a last question. Please, please. yes. Um, my, my question is concerning the notion of um, disintegration of Sittlichkeit. Yeah. Um, because it seems that what you claim in a political perspective seems much more like a social democratic way of answering the questions and being or like giving like a conservative um, answer in like restoring what is uh, still there in a way, and that the radical left should rather um, explore like new or like, create new values and I think um, this can also Be, be seen on a European scale, that we shouldn't see Europe like as a fixed identity of values that we should defend or something else, but we see it as a continuity or a connection of different kind of struggles. And in this way, I don't know that uh, radical left occupied houses in Germany or Greece um, for refugee self-organization in a small step. It's a, I don't know, it's a local approach that is right, but it's um, an example, giving an example of how wealth uh, could be distribu distributed um, otherwise. And this seems to me like um, giving, giving an example, giving us a perspective that is radical differently, and the su situation is in this way op opened up that this is possibly also. So it's not only right-wing populists that can say new things, but it seems to me that at least to some extent, and Sufisa was also an example of it, mm. that the left can also uh, regroup or restart um, kind of uh, radical emancipation practices. Practices? Yeah, but, uh, you know, okay, okay, I, a nice question, but again, my God, we would need more, more time. Because, you know, I know very well the situation with Syriza, it's wonderful, yes, occupy houses and so on and so on. And, no, you know, some, I will not name them, very high-level Syriza politician gave me the best argument which is critical towards this approach. He said, 
But then we got it that by organizing this occupation of every of uh, abandoned houses, that we are doing the greatest service to capitalism. We are softening its impact. You know, like if I were to be a capitalist, I would say, yes, empty houses, put the immigrants in, yes. It's one, you know, there is a certain way to fight for the marginals, which just, uh, how to put it, makes the situation tolerable. It's a little bit like, unfortunately, this is not true, but I remember from my communist youth, it was generally accepted that political jokes were fabricated by communist uh, secret police itself, to allow them to let out steam and so So what I would say is this. You know, uh, uh, it's, uh, this, I don't, this is wonderful when this happens, houses here, there, but I don't think this model has in itself a potential to be universalized. This is a secondary palliative measure, which is wonderful, and so on and so on. I think Syriza came, and here I'm now in bad relations personally with both of them in Syriza. The majority Syriza and the left platform, why? Uh, although I doubt about many of his solutions, democratizing Europe and so on, but I think the only true radical was Varoufakis. Why don't forget that, you know what's the problem? When referendum failed, and succeeded, and then Syriza capitulated, and so on. Uh, what was the real choice there? We had, on the one hand, Tsipras capitulation. Okay. Inacceptable. But I think that the left platform plan, do Brexit, print our own money, and so on, was also absolutely nothing subversive. It fitted perfectly Western Europe, Brussels bureaucracy. That's what, it's now clear. First, Varoufakis made this public, and then I learned from some Slovene politicians it was true. Varoufakis told me that his greatest surprise was this one. He visited Wolfgang Schauble in those negotiations, and uh, uh, he thought this would be a moment of almost blackmail. Right? He said, oh, if you put pressure on us like that, uh, we will do Brexit. You know probably what was Schauble's reaction. Fine, we fully support you. We can give you 20, 30 billions to help you. That is to say, Brexit, the way it was planned by left platform or in Syriza, was not anything problematic. Because this is the West European Schauble and so on perspective. We have a certain order, you are in, you are out. Varoufakis tried something much more radical, to unsettle these borders themselves, to remain in and not obey the game. For example, his plan was to default the debt, but at the same time remain within euro and cause chaos there. This is why... This was the true tragic story. Do you know that he was the only one who, remember, he was forced to step down even before as a minister of finance because he was immediately perceived as the true threat. Why? Because, again, he was the one who really disturbed the game. If you go out, you go out. This is not disturbing the game. 
This, uh, you just do another model and Europe would say, okay, let the Greeks uh, swim in their own misery, sweater, and so on. But what Varoufakis did, it was the same thing, although I don't have, I don't know him great ideas, but you remember first years of the first Gerhard Schröder government, how Oscar Lafontaine had to leave. Why? Because, again, I'm not celebrating him, but he touched a sore point, controlling the banks, finances, and so on and so on. And exactly the same thing Varoufakis wanted. I think this is where you touch the sore point, controlling banks, money, and so on. That's why, do you know that there was a big movement in Greece, they tried even to put Varoufakis in prison. There was a trial, he barely escaped it. So you see, this was where Syriza was at its most radical. That's why Syriza was so traumatic. Precisely because it was within Europe, not outside. And I wonder what would have happened. I'm not even too much of an optimist because Varoufakis is my good friend, blah, blah. But sometimes I'm like, no, he has so many creative ideas and so on. And I'm afraid of people who have too many creative ideas, no? Genosse, what is this? <laughs> ah, I know, this is his way to say, can we tweet to Norman and Strasse? <laughs> It's just around the corner. Yeah, really? Oh my God. So, um, Slava, thank you so much for this uh, intellectual pyrotechnics and, and um, um, thank you for your patience for being here and uh, please you are welcome for our next uh, lecture, which is when? Next week. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Without Slavoj. <laughs> and uh, so please have a good uh, evening. Thanks to you, uh, Slavoj. And uh, hope we, uh, ich hoffe, wir sehen uns so oder so wieder. Absolut. Vielen Dank. Vielen Dank. Uh, it's, uh, uh, nine. Not too bad. Not too bad.